Thank you guys. Y'all doing well? Wide awake? Yeah, absolutely. I walked out of my office this week and looked down. I heard some commotion down the other end of the gym, and I looked down, and here's Kenny with a backpack on, and he said he had 30 pounds in the backpack, and he's running steps. And he was there for about an hour. And I thought, goodness gracious. So he's got a pretty fun, uh, amazing, I don't know that I call it fun, experience ahead of him. He calls it fun. But anyhow, I'm really excited for him and excited for our church to jump in and be praying for him. Um, we have been in a series looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. And uh, today we come to two parables, both of them teaching the same point. And the point that Jesus is trying to hammer home with these two parables is, hey, if you're going to follow after me, there's a cost that's involved. And have you considered that cost? And so that's what we're going to take a look at. Um, and he talks about the cost of discipleship. That's the title of my sermon today, the cost of discipleship. A disciple is merely somebody who's a student, somebody who's a pupil, somebody who commits themselves, devotes themselves to the teachings of another person. For, for instance, you could be a disciple of Mr. Miyagi. Some of y'all remember Mr. Miyagi. You can learn to wax on, wax off like Mr. Miyagi did. You can be a disciple of uh, Pavarotti and learn to sing operatic music like he did. You could be a disciple of a master mason and learn the artistry and the skill of being able to lay block and lay brick the way that master mason does. To be a disciple is to follow in the footsteps of another, to adopt their way of thinking, their way of life, and Jesus is inviting us to be his disciples. Now, before we say, yeah, sign me up, Jesus. I want to be one of your disciples. He says, hey, hold on just a second. Have you considered the cost? And so again, that's what Jesus is trying to drive home today with these parables. Our text comes from Luke chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 25 through 27 and verse 33. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Here's Jesus spelling out the cost of following him. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I've got a timeline here to start with. It's kind of a rudimentary timeline that I just threw together. And this shows the ministry, the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. It lasted three years. Some folks say that Jesus' public ministry started in 26 AD, ran all the way out to 29 AD. Others say it started in 30 to 33 I don't know which one you're more into, but it's not a salvation issue where you want to date the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the point is that it, his public ministry lasted for three years. Um, our passage for today lands somewhere toward the end of Jesus' public ministry, probably within the last month of his life, the last month in the lead-up to him going to Jerusalem, perhaps even a couple of weeks prior to him going to Jerusalem. Um, and so when he gets to Jerusalem, we know what's going to happen to him, right? He's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, and he's going to be crucified. Just hang on to that thought. It says in Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him. The word in the Greek that's translated there as great crowd is the word oxlos. Other places in the New Testament it's translated as multitudes. Other places in the New Testament it's translated as hosts. 
Here it's translated as great crowds. Typically, this is referring to a crowd of a thousand or more. So this is not just 20 or 30 people that have come along to hear the Lord Jesus or that have followed him. This is throngs of people. This is more people than you could possibly count that are following after Jesus. Verse 25 says, now great crowds accompanied him. That means that they went where he went. They camped out where he camped out. And some of these thousand plus people are people that Jesus had healed. I mean, they're just so excited about the fact that their legs working again. They're so excited about the fact that their abdominal pain is gone. Jesus has healed them, and so they're following after him. Others are family members of those who he had healed. Um, still others are people that are like, you know what? Jesus is really exciting, and I just want to see what he's going to do next. And so they're following after Jesus to see if they might see some other miraculous event. And still there's others who are waiting for Jesus to get to Jerusalem. They're excited about the fact that, you know what, when Jesus gets there, if he's really the Messiah, he's going to boot the Romans out of Jerusalem, he's going to take back the land of Israel, and he's going to reign the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. And so they're excited to see that. And so it says there in verse 25, that he turns to them, or he said to them. Now, the way that Luke presents this material, it's a kind of an abrupt about turn. Jesus is heading down the road one day. He's got all these people that are following behind him, and they're excited about Jesus. Maybe they're off in some conversation on their own. And Jesus just turns to them in the middle of the day, in the middle of their walk, and he says, hey, look, gang, um, I, I've got something to share with you here. Have you considered, have you thought about what it's going to cost to follow me? Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And things are going to get really difficult when they get there. And so he wants to make sure they understand the sacrifice that they're about ready to have to make. He gives them three different areas of life, three different sacrifices that these folks are going to have to make if they want to continue to follow after him. Number one, the first cost are family relationships. Look at verse 26. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and children and wife and brothers and sisters he cannot be my disciple now in first blush that makes me go hate what does jesus do in telling people to hate one another that doesn't sound like jesus that sounds completely out of character for him well in the new testament um we are told to honor our father and mother. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes that husbands are supposed to love their wives. Wives are supposed to love their husbands. So what's this talk about hate? Again, that just seems out of character for Jesus. Jesus himself even said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're supposed to love our who? Our enemies. I mean, and here he's telling me to hate my own family. My own, I mean, that's, that's crazy talk. What's going on here? Well, remember, Jesus is just a month or so away from being arrested, tried, and crucified. And while right now his ministry is exciting, and it's filled with miracles, and it seems to be creating this wave of popularity that's following him, following him all the way down to Jerusalem, in just a few short weeks, all of that excitement, Jesus knows, is going to turn to tragedy. And it's going to turn to danger. And it's going to turn to time of great uncertainty. So Jesus' statement goes out as a warning that following him, get this, is about to become uh, extremely difficult and dangerous. What, we, what will be required for the days ahead will be a level of dedication and a level of devotion that is so great that it will make family loyalties look like hatred. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, hey, look, when you stack out what's going to be required to follow me when we get to Jerusalem against family loyalties, and those are strong. Those bonds can be really strong. It's going to make those loyalties, what's going to be required to follow me, it's going to make those loyalties look like hatred by comparison. 
Friends, Jesus is not telling anybody to hate their mama or their children. This is classic hyperbole. It is overstating the point in order to make a point. And the point that he's making is that family loyalty cannot come before loyalty to Jesus. Jesus wants to occupy the top spot in these people's lives. That is the first cost of following him. Over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talked about that, about this. He had a scribe that showed up one day, and he said, Hey, hey uh, um, pastor, he said, or, or rabbi, um, actually, not, not that scripture, sorry. I got ahead of myself. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even the bonds of your family, even though they may be incredibly strong, and many of us, those bonds really are, they're so strong, Jesus is saying those bonds of family loyalty cannot supersede the priority of Jesus Christ in our lives if we want to be a disciple. Jesus knows that the day is coming and it's not far off when a family member of one of these followers of Jesus is going to say to them, hey, look, it's either us, the family, or it's that rabbi. You choose. Again, this is cost number one that Jesus is spelling out, the cost of family loyalties. Number two, the second cost is the cost of creature comfort. Still in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, skip on down, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This reference to our own life means that we are willing to put the comforts of life on the line in order to follow Jesus. For some of us, that may mean a reduction in lifestyle. For others of us, that may mean literally changing zip codes and leaving a livelihood behind, maybe even going to another continent in order to follow the Lord Jesus. The point is, Jesus is telling this crowd, and he's telling you and me, if you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you creature comforts. Over in Matthew's gospel, this is what I thought of just a second ago. Over in Matthew's gospel, a gentleman came to Jesus and said, Matthew 8 and verse 19, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responded, verse 20, Are you sure about that? Because foxes have their holes. Foxes live where? In their holes, right? In the ground. They have a home. They have a place to go and lie their head down at night. He said, birds of the air have their nest. They've got a home to go to. He said, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure that you want to follow me? Um, the Apostle Paul lists off some of the things that he had to endure, some of the lack of creature comforts, you might say, in order to follow Jesus. 2 Corinthians verse 11, end of verse 23, Paul mentions imprisonments. This is something Paul had to endure in order to follow Jesus. He also says that he had countless beatings, often brought to the point of being near death because the beatings were so severe. Verse 24, five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That beating that the Lord Jesus received, horrible as it was, Paul received that five different times. He says in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. That is, he was flogged. Once I was stoned, literally left for dead, with blood running out of every orifice of his face. And he got back up. The Holy Spirit revived him. Once he said, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And on and on he goes there. The point is, to be a disciple of Jesus means that there is a readiness, a willingness to see a loss of creature comforts, even a loss of our own life, if that is what is required. I think we're beginning to see that the bar that the Lord Jesus is setting for discipleship is way, way 
up here. It's high. Number three, the third cost that Jesus lays out is the cost of isolation and persecution. Isolation and persecution. He says in verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The first century, in the first century, it was not uncommon for, a, for, people, to, for people to see prisoners that were being crucified or that had been crucified. The Romans would leave those bodies up as a reminder to everyone. That would have been a disturbing but all too familiar scene for the locals. When prisoners were crucified, they were made to carry the horizontal part of the cross to the site of the crucifixion. And so when Jesus says to his first century crowd, hey, look, you're going to have to bear a cross, he's reminding them that people will treat you, one of the perks, if you would, of following Jesus is that people will treat you like that, that criminal who's being required to carry that cross out to the place of their crucifixion. Jesus is basically saying, hey, look, folks, follow after me and you're going to be persecuted. Follow after me. And you're going to be isolated in society. Um, not exactly a tantalizing proposition, would you say, uh, that Jesus is spelling out here. Uh, remember, Jesus has laid out for them the potential loss of family already. He said there's going to be a loss of creature comforts, perhaps even your own life. And now Jesus is telling them there's a real possibility of persecution and isolation of cross-carrying struggles ahead. This is what you can expect. If you follow Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, forecasted, he forecasted uh, persecution of his followers. He said, Matthew 5 and verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus didn't think that there would be some persecution of, of his followers, why would he even mention this? He mentions this because he knows that in order to follow him, persecution will result. Jesus anticipates that's going to be part of the program. All right, let's sum up. Jesus turns somewhat abruptly to this thousand plus people. And he says, before we go any further, gang, before we get down here to Jerusalem, I want you to consider what it's going to cost you to continue following after me. Number one, it'll cost you family loyalties. Number two, it's going to cost you creature comforts, perhaps even in certain circumstances, your own life. And finally and thirdly, it will cost you isolation and persecution. There will be a cross to bear. Now, here's the sign-up sheet. Who wants to be my disciple? Right? So again, that bar is really high. And Jesus is saying, look, gang, this is, this is what it's going to take to follow me down into Jerusalem. In the verses that follow, Jesus tells two parables. And each of these parables is inviting people to think about to consider, because I think a lot of the folks that are walking down the road hadn't thought that far ahead, hadn't considered what it was really going to cost in order to follow Jesus. They were just enjoying the show, right? They were just enjoying the miracles. They were going along to hope Jesus was going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, hey, gang, that's not my program. That's not what you can expect. Uh, and so Jesus tells them two parables. First one, parable number one, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. In the ancient world, folks would build watchtowers out on the edges of their field. And those watchtowers were there, especially and manned during harvest time in both the morning and the evening, uh, and, well, through the night, in order to keep watch over the fields to make sure folks didn't come into the fields and steal some of the harvest. I mean, it was basically their Simply Safe or their Walton EMC security system. Back then, they had these watchtowers. That's how they kept track of things. 
In Jesus' parable, he makes the point that if you're going to build one of these watchtowers, it only makes sense that you'd first sit down with pen and parchment and that you'd make a list of all the materials you're going to need and a cost that goes along with those. You make a list of all of the uh, labor costs that are going to go along with building this watchtower. And then you total all that up and you figure, well, do I have enough money? You know, count through your money. Do I have enough money to pay for this watchtower? Just the same, you wouldn't build a house if you had insufficient funds. I mean, maybe you could get the thing framed up, but it wouldn't be dried in. I mean, who would do that, right? And it would just sit there. And Jesus says in verse 29, otherwise, if you don't figure the cost, when this field owner has laid the foundation, he'll not be able to finish it. And then all who see it, everybody that walks by, will begin to mock him, saying, verse 30, this man began to build, but was not able to finish. Jesus, again, Jesus' point is, before we get to Jerusalem, before you sign on to be my disciple, stop and think about what it's going to cost you. Are you willing to pay that price? Parable number two, verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet his adversary who comes against him with 20,000? The point is, have you done the self-assessment? I mean, if a king says, okay, I got 10,000 troops, and I know the guy across the line has got 20,000 troops, are my 10,000 going to get overwhelmed? More than likely. And so the king says, you know what, I need to sit down and think about, can, is this going to be a successful campaign? Can I do this? Can I win this? And Jesus is saying same thing when it comes to being one of his disciples. If family's more important to you than Jesus is, probably not going to be successful. If, if creature comforts are more important to you than Jesus is, again, probably not going to be successful. If the thought of having to defend what you believe or take a stand in your community is not something you're interested in, again, maybe being a disciple of Jesus is not for you. The cost is quite high. Jesus implores us here with these two parables to stop and consider the cost. And then Jesus wraps up the whole thing with one final catch-all statement. He says in verse 33, in case there was any ambiguity here, he says, so therefore, love those words, therefore, right? It connects the statement that we're about ready to read to everything he's just been talking about. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, that person cannot be my disciple. In other words, if there's anything in life that we are clinging to, any anchors that we have not pulled up, so that that ship of our life can set sail and fall after Jesus. If we haven't done that, Jesus is saying, you know what? This is probably not going to be successful. Followership demands full commitment. Um, I know we have one football coach. Maybe we've got a couple other football coaches uh, in not high school, but maybe you're out coaching. I don't know on the field, but we've got coaches in here, right? We've got some coaches. Ask any football, high school football coach in a, of a winning program in the state of Georgia. Can you have a winning program with less than full commitment? And the answer is unequivocally no. No way. Could never pull that off. Could never do that. I mean, you've got to have buy-in from all of your players, buy-in from all of your backers, buy-in from all of your coaches. They've got to be fully 100% committed to this thing if you're going to have a winning program. Same goes with being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He's laying it out there. He's saying, hey, gang, if we want to have a winning program, if we want the, us being the disciple to be successful, then we got to be all in, full commitment. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today.
means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does any of this make, right, to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate that. I hear Jesus. He's turned around. He's talking to these people. kind of throws that at them all of a sudden like something for them to think about as they're heading back on down the road. Uh, but what difference does any of this make to me? Great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that I probably never said after I've asked that question. In the history of me asking that question, I think I've asked it quite a few times. And it is, the, the, that what I'm going to say is that this may not make any difference to your life. Here's why. I don't think I've said that, right? Never heard me say that. All right. If it doesn't make any difference to you, um, it, it may not make any difference to you. And here's why. Look back at verse 27. Jesus lists off cost number one, family loyalty. Lists off cost number two, creature comforts, even your own life. And then he says, if you're not willing to pay that price, then that person cannot get to heaven. Are we on verse? We're not on the right verse. Yeah, we're on the right verse. 27. Yeah, 27. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, look, if you, if you won't be willing to give up those things, you can't have your sins forgiven. That's not what he says. He says, you can't be my what? My disciple. Um, and it says it again, end of, verse, uh, end of verse 27. He says there, look, if you're not willing to pay that price, you can't be my disciple. End of verse 28 says the same thing. He lists off the cross, and he says, look, if you're not willing to bear your cross, you can't be my disciple. End of verse 33, same thing. He says, look, if you're not willing to renunciate all that you have, you can't be my disciple. The criterion that Jesus lays out here are not salvation, salvation criteria. Jesus is not talking about whether or not you can have your sins forgiven. He's not talking about whether or not you can go to heaven. My goodness, if this was a criteria for people to go to heaven, I mean, that bar set so high, I don't know anybody would ever make it, right? Very few people would make it. Um, and so Jesus is not talking here about salvation. He's talking about uh, what he has in view are people who have said, you know what, I want the totality of my life. I want the focus of my life. I want the energies of my life to be about being a master mason to be about being one of Mr. Miyagi's disciples, right? Or in this occasion, to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. I'm all in, because I know that that's what's required. That is what, that, that's the, the substance of what Jesus is talking about here. In our little uh, men's breakfast group this week, the guys um, made an analogy. They said it's kind of like being a Braves fan. Like you have some Braves fans who are, you know, they tune in when, the, when it gets... Uh, toward the end of the season and we're in the playoffs that kind of thing and they start picking it up and why and who are those players i don't know that guy I don't know his batting average tell me something about it but then you got other people who are yeah they go out to a couple of games a year watch a few games here and there when they have an opportunity and then you got those other fans right they start at spring training and they're tracking and they're seeing all the trades that are going on through the year and they're keeping track of batting averages and they're keeping track of statistics and they knew who the know who the golden glove potential candidates are and all those sorts of things they know what pitcher's good what pitcher's bad they're watching the games every night and they're into it and so that's kind of what we're talking about they're all Braves fans right they're all Braves fans just some of them are like oh man they're really into it and so it's the same thing here Jesus is saying hey look you cannot be my disciple he's not talking about you can't be a a, a Christian he's talking about people who are willing to give themselves completely all in to being a follower of him so again um, if all you want from God are your sins forgiven and to go to heaven then put your faith and your trust for heaven in the cross of Christ but if you want a, to be a disciple if you want to take your faith to the next level then this is what it's going to take um, I've got a slide for you here and I hope this illustrates what I've been talking about here so far um, this first slide, the uh, tan circle area, think of that as your life. 
and my stick figure chair, supposed to be a throne, um, is what's in control of your life. And you can see there the cross is outside of the circle. It's outside of this person's life. They haven't made a decision to bring Jesus into their life yet. They haven't made a decision to put their faith and trust in him. And so he's outside of their life. Next slide. You can see now this person's made that decision to bring Jesus into their life. They're now a Braves fan. They are wearing the jerseys. They're they're with it. Um, However, Jesus is just a part, a part of their life. Who's in control at this point? Me, self, right? Self is still in control. Self is still pulling on the reins. Self has still got its hands on the wheel of this person's life. One more slide. In this slide, we see that this person had said, you know what? I surrender everything. I take my hands off of the reins. I take my hands off the wheel, and I give my life to the Lord Jesus. I'm making him truly Lord of my life. I'm going to put him on the throne. Um, I've got one more thought for us to consider, and that is, why should I be willing to do this? Why should I be willing to sacrifice so much and to give up so much and to let somebody else be in control of my life? And Gordon, it sounds like a lot of negative things may end up coming out in my life, and they may. Why would I be willing to pay that price? Three reasons, three three quick reasons. Number one, um, we should be willing to pay this price, number one, because Jesus has already done so much for us. When someone gives their life for you, friends, that is not to be taken for granted. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this, God shows his love for us, here's how he shows it, while we were still sinners, that is while we were off living in sin, pursuing earthly uh, pleasure, while we didn't give a rip about Jesus, Jesus went to the cross for us anyway. When we were living in rebellion against God, think about that. While we were living in rebellion against God, Jesus went to the cross for us anyway. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that's not something to be taken for granted. And it's reason number one why we should be willing to give control of our lives over to him and make him Lord. Number two, second reason why we should be willing to pay this price is because living for Jesus gives our lives purpose and meaning. Gives our lives purpose and meaning. You know, one of these days, I do quite a bit of funerals over the years, one of these days, folks are going to be standing around your casket. They will. And that'll be the end of your time here on this earth. Between now and that moment, which no one in the history of the world has ever escape that moment. Between now and that moment, we have a choice. We can either live the days that we've been given for ourselves, we can be consumers of life, the breath that we've been given, or we can turn the resources of our lives, our time, our talent, our energies, toward eternal things that will count long after we are gone. And serving Jesus gives us the chance to turn the breath in our lungs towards something greater than just ourselves. Jesus gives us purpose. Jesus gives us meaning for our lives. You know, if the President of the United States was to call and say, I need you, 
I mean, people would say, yes, sir, absolutely. President of the United States called me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, whatever it is that you need, sir, I need you at four o'clock in the morning. No problem, sir. I'll get myself together and I'll be up there, whatever it is that you need. People are standing in line to be able to serve at the pleasure of the president. Friends, the God of the universe has said, I want you in my service. I mean, does the God of the universe not take precedent over the president of the United States? Absolutely. What an honor that the God of the universe would ask you, would ask me to come into his service, friends. Certainly, uh, that's something, that's another reason for us uh, to, to, to be willing to pay this price because Jesus gives us purpose and he gives us meaning. Third and finally, why should I do this? Number three, because Jesus said, great will be your reward in heaven. You know, sometimes Christians are criticized for thinking about heaven too much. Like, you know, all you ought to do is talk about heaven. Frankly, I don't think we talk about heaven enough. I, I think all we do is we sit around, we think about this world. We think about, you know, experiences. We think about our bank accounts. We think about all the different things that we want to accomplish while we're here. I'm going, maybe we ought to put our thoughts toward eternal things, toward heaven, and that may rearrange and change some of the priorities of our lives. Jesus promises his followers that he will repay the sacrifices that we make on his behalf with rewards in heaven. I have no idea what those are. You would ask me, Gordon, show me the Bible verse where it says what we're going to get. I don't know. I have no idea what it's going to be. But here's the thing. If God's going to give you a reward, I promise you, you're going to want it. Okay, And so whatever it is that God's given us, friends, I want to be in line to make sure I get that. Paul said it like this. I'm going to close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, this was Paul's focus. He focused on eternal things. He focused on the reward of heaven. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for just giving us a little shot in the arm this morning of where you want our priorities to be. Yes, the cost is high. And yes, you are calling us to it. God, may there be because we have seen all that you've done for us. Because we've seen that there are rewards for us wait, that you have said, God, you have for us, waiting for us in heaven. Because, God, you give us purpose, you give us meaning in our lives. Lord, may we be willing to step forward and say, yes, my all to you, Jesus. Get up on the throne of my life. Lord Jesus, just in these quiet moments of communion today, if we need to say to you by the leading of your Holy Spirit, God, I want to be off the throne. I don't want self to be in control. All I do is make a mess of it anyway. Jesus, you take the reins. Jesus, you take the wheel. You be in charge. You'll do a much better job of things than I ever could do. Lord, in these quiet moments of communion, as we remember and reflect on your broken body and your shed blood, may we pray that prayer in sincerity and faith. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.